Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Yeah, it's almost Christmas time, but that doesn't mean the enemy is relaxing in his attack on you. So put on the armor, starting with the belt of truth. Wear the belt of truth. Wait a minute, how do you wear truth? Let's talk about that today. We're kind of coming down to the end of the year, and all year long, I've been talking about standing. And we've been talking specifically uh, about standing and winning this fight because this battle is for real. It's going on all around us all the time. And I know it's easy to get caught up in the busy of the everyday and to miss out on the victory that he calls you to. So I hope you've been, um, I hope you've been with me. I hope you've been following along. We try to provide note sheets for you guys to help you. Um, and it's always a blessing for me when I see you writing down notes. You know, I feel like maybe I'm helping you in some way. Uh, so I hope those are good. Uh, everything we do is just to, to help you guys out. That's why we do the um, response cards that we do. You know, we know that we're here to come alongside you and to help you win. And so we want to lift you up in prayer. And so we love getting these cards. We pray for them every Monday as a staff team. They're really important to us. You and what you're going through uh, is really important to us. And we especially love it when you share your victories on those cards. We really love hearing about how God is at work in your life. So praise reports uh, are the first thing that we'll share in staff meeting on Mondays. We talk about seeing God at work in people's lives. And so anytime you have that, we love getting those from you, whether you do it on paper or whether you do the digital response card. It really, we get all those and, uh, and we, love, we love looking through those because we want you to experience victory. We want you to be strong. In fact, that's what it says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but we fight against the evil rulers and authorities in the unseen places, in the unseen world. Uh, we fight against uh, mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. We've talked about how this war is going on all around you and it begins right here in your mind. How the enemy is a liar and an accuser and he begins this battle by invading your mind. He doesn't invade with tanks and troops. He invades your mind and he builds strongholds, right? He builds bad thought patterns into our lives you know so that's why you have a predisposition to the negative that's why your mind always goes to this one place at a certain time or when things happen it's why we have wrong perceptions about our lives and we have mistaken identity issues about ourselves he traps you in that cycle of defeat and he tricks you into becoming something you aren't and that's why Paul's telling us to be strong, to be strong, because our weapons tear down those strongholds. 
right? 2 Corinthians 10 says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power, God power. They have God power. He gives us his power through the weapons of our warfare to destroy those strongholds. So we've been talking about this all this time. Uh, We've been going through and laying groundwork. And today I want us to get to our first element of the armor, the second to last Sunday morning of the year. I want us to get to the first element of our warfare. So let's get to it. Look what he says in Ephesians 6, 13. He starts off like this. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So he says right here, he says um, that they are powerful, powerful, uh, powerful weapons. And he says to put on every piece, put on every piece of the armor. Yeah, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. This is really important. He says, put on every piece. He doesn't say, do this halfway. He doesn't say, today you wear these pieces and tomorrow you take on those pieces. He doesn't say that some are good for today and maybe you'll get to the other ones. He says, put on every piece, go all out on this. Take it seriously. I think that might be one of, the, one of our problems. We don't, we don't take this very seriously. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. He says, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy. He says, resist the enemy. So the word here for resist means to oppose, to stand against, to stand despite what the enemy wants to do to you. So put on every piece in order to resist the enemy. And he says to stand firm. He says, when you do this, you will be standing firm at the end of the battle. This is what we've been talking about all year. I want you to stand and I want your house to stand. I don't want you or your family to fall. I want you to stand before the judge one day and I want you to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what you want? I want you to be well rewarded for how you lived this life. I don't want you to barely make it. I want you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's get to this verse again. He says, he says this very next thing. He says, so stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth. So stand your ground. He starts off telling us to stand your ground. Georgia is a stand your ground state. You know what that means? It means here in Georgia, it is legal for you to defend yourself and your family if you perceive that you are in danger. It means that if you suspect violence, you have the authority, the legal authority to use lethal force to stop someone who is going to conduct violence against you and your family. So Georgia is a stand your ground state. And right here in Ephesians, uh, we're told to stand your ground, stand your ground, stand. You are called to take responsibility for the territory you occupy. You are called to stand your ground. You are responsible. You stand against the evil attack. What? 
why do you keep just sitting back and hoping the pastor will do it for you? Why do you sit back and hope that maybe you just hum a hymn and it'll just happen, that you'll be okay? You have been given the command to stand your ground. Stand your ground when it comes to the enemy accusing and manipulating your spouse. Stand your ground. Fight for your family. You are called to stand your ground against the woke indoctrination of your children and your grandchildren in elementary school these days. That is your responsibility. You're called to stand your ground when he is trying to push you out of the light and into darkness, when he's trying to keep you down and depressed, when he's trying to keep you in defeat. You are called to stand your ground. Don't let him roll right on over you and your kids and your grandkids. You stand your ground. So who's responsible here? Who is? We are called to stand our ground. Remember, the liar is out to prove that God can't create anything that he can't break. And you're out to show that you will stand your ground and you will not let Satan break what you've been given. Come on. So stand your ground. Ephesians 6, 14, let's go back and look at that verse again. Stand your ground, putting on the first element of our armor, the belt of truth. The first thing that you do is you put on the belt of of truth, the belt of truth. This is really important because next blank on your page, the only way to fight a liar is with the truth, right? Only way for us to fight this liar, our enemy, is with the truth. Jesus says in John 8, he says, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Of course you're going to be in bondage. Of course you're going to be in slavery. Of course you're going to be beaten down when you don't know the truth. The truth will set you free. We fight. We stand our ground with the truth. Most of the time, Satan's lies are not obvious. They're subtle. I mean, sometimes, sometimes the lies are, are really big, you know, obvious outright lies, but sometimes, most of the time, Satan will use subtle lies, partial truths, right? He will costume himself and he will come identifying as something he isn't, right? I mean, it says in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You know, he comes to us making us think that what he's telling us is true when really it is a shifting sand lie. We really have this a lot today. We really see this in our culture. Our culture is all about this today, and it's this whole idea of relative truth, right? Truth is relative. My truth may not be your truth. You know, that's a huge thing in our culture today. Now, I just want to make sure that I'm clear about what I'm not talking about because relativistic thinking is actually important in certain cases. You gotta be able to think in relative 
terms when you're using the English language and communicating to other people, right? So I might say something relative. I might make a truthful relative statement like this. Sherry Dusek is short. Right? I mean, yeah, that's true compared to me, but not compared to her two-year-old grandkid, right? I mean, she's short compared to a normal-sized adult human, <laughs> but not compared to a two-year-old grandchild. So short is a relative term. You see what I'm saying? I might say Steve Dusick's sermons are long. Not compared to some of them. I read through some of the you know, sermons of Charles Spurgeon who would preach for two hours at a time. Yeah, so Steve's sermons are long but not compared to some. Some things are relatively true. And sometimes my truth may realistically not be your truth. Like sometimes I might say something like, man, I just wish I could be a child again. And for me, boy, that would be that's true. I'd love to be a child. I'd love to go back to then knowing what I know now, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to return to that stage of innocence and no responsibility and uh, invest all our money into Apple in the early 90s. I would love to do that, absolutely. So that's true for me. But I know some people that would never want to return to a childhood which was nothing but abuse and pain and shame. This horror show that they had to live through as children. And who would ever want to go back to that? So in some cases, you know, I, I might make a truth statement. I'd love to return to being a child. That's true for me, may not be true for everybody, okay? So there's some ways that you gotta think relative, and that's okay. But then you take that same idea and you apply it to a truth, moral, absolute. And you say something like, you know, sex between two men is wrong. Or a man can become a woman. Right? And you say something like that and you're, you think you're stating an absolute truth, but some people are going to say, well, how dare you? How dare you impose your reality on someone else? You know, how dare you say uh, that, that I can't morph and change? I, I'm a man. I, how dare you say I can't become a woman or the reverse? I mean, how dare you impose your morality on me? You see the problem here? The problem comes when you start applying relativistic thinking to moral, ethical, rational absolutes relativism today is saying that there is no objective external standard for what is right and wrong for everyone now we don't hold to this idea because we're biblical christians and we believe that god is the definer of absolute truth and while there are relative truths in the world today when god says it i believe it and that settles it we really actually believe that God is the definer of truth and that he has revealed truth to us in his word. His word is truth. Does, does his word contain all truth? No, it doesn't contain all truth. 
You know, I, I, his word doesn't say anything about photosynthesis. We know that photosynthesis is a real thing. And we all breathe a lot easier in the springtime when the leaves are out, you know. Uh, we, we love that whole process and understand that there are truths that are in the world that are not defined for us by God. But that does not mean that the word of God is less true. It just means that what it claims is true. Does that make sense? So this whole idea of relativistic thinking, it, it's not a 21st century thing. You know, it began a long time ago, you know, in Genesis 3 in the garden where, you know, God had said the truth, eat of this tree and you will. And then in Genesis 3, Satan comes along and says, did God really say not to eat? from any of the trees in the garden. Did God really, mm, did God really say that? And of course, Eve responds, well, yeah, we were told eat and die. And he's like, you will not die. Come on, God's holding out on you. He knows something that you don't. And he begins to get them to think in relative terms. Remember, your enemy is a liar and he wants you to doubt the truth. And he uses relativistic thinking to manipulate the truth and so truth isn't really truth anymore and before you know it you've built your house on the shifting sands of your enemy's lies and that's when you fall Jesus had an encounter with some relativists right so it's um, it's the week that he goes to Jerusalem that big time that he goes to Jerusalem. He enters on that donkey and that's his triumphal entry. Isn't it interesting that the king of kings has a triumphal entry on a donkey? I mean, it, he has this upside down kingdom that's amazing to think about. But everybody recognized what was going on because everybody knew who Jesus was and they were really excited about him coming to town. And they saw him coming in on a donkey, which is, which is what was prophesied in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, it said that he will come riding on a donkey. Who will come? The Messiah will come. And so everybody's excited that Jesus is making a statement that he is, in fact, the promised one, the Messiah. Everybody goes crazy. They're laying their coats down. They're putting palm fronds down. They're singing songs. Everybody's talking about him. And he comes into town and then he, you know, he wins everybody over because the first thing he does is he goes in the temple. What does he do there in the temple? Right, he overturns the tables and he's mad at everybody and he's like, you bunch of thieves, you know. But then he continues teaching and doing miracles in town. He's, he's doing all kinds of miracles and just winning the crowd over. And they love him. They see what he's doing, hear what he's saying. And it's really an amazing, amazing crescendo to his entire ministry. Even the little kids, even the little children are running around singing songs about Jesus and they're calling him the son of David. That's another messianic term. They know, these little kids, they know the truth about Jesus and they're singing songs about him. Well, of course, this infuriates the religious guys in charge. They can't handle this. They've been humiliated in the temple, and now Jesus is teaching with this authority, showing his authority with his healings and everything, and even the little kids are singing songs. They never sang songs about us. They're singing songs about this nobody, Jesus, and they get really mad. They're 
Their way of life is threatened. Their authority is threatened. And so in Matthew 21, when Jesus returns to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and the elders came up to him demanding. So they come up shaking their fists. They can't believe he has the gall to come back here to the temple again because they know that he knows that he's doing the wrong thing, surely. And so they come demanding, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? So they're scared. Their way of life is threatened. Their authority is threatened. And so they're making demands of Jesus. And Jesus, he responds this way. He says, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, by what authority I do these things. If you answer one question, and here's the question Jesus poses to the rulers. He says, did John's authority, John the Baptist, did John's authority, John the, the one that they killed, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Does authority come from heaven? I mean, was it godly authority? Should you have listened to him or was it worldly authority? Should you have rejected him? In other words, where do you stand? What do you say is the truth about John and his ministry? They recognized John. They knew who John was. They weren't the ones that actually killed him, but they sure were complicit in all of that. But they knew that John was a popular figure. So what they did was not answer Jesus' question just yet. They decided they needed to huddle up. Let's huddle up. Come on, let's huddle up. And they do that. They kind of back off. And they talk amongst themselves. In fact, that's what it says. It says they talked it over among themselves. Here's what they said. If we say that he was from heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe him. But if we say he was human, then we'll be mobbed because the people loved John and regarded him as a prophet. So they're going, we have to give an answer here. We have to, we have to state what we see the truth being. We, we have to be clear. We have to make sure that we win this. So we, we've got to give a clear definition. So they go back to Jesus and they say, we don't, we don't know. We, we, don't, we don't know. This is an incredibly telling answer. Not just because we know what the conversation was in their huddle, but it's an incredibly telling answer. You see... They knew what they believed. But their authority, their status, their way of life meant more to them than the actual truth did. So they manipulated the facts. They stated that they didn't know. They were pragmatic in their view about the truth and they just deflected what was really going on. They realized they couldn't win. And so they elected to remain as politically correct as they could. And then what Jesus says next is interesting. When they used the half-truth, when they used the relative truth, Jesus responds and he says, okay, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. You came to making demands of me. You want to know something from me. Well, if you're not gonna, if you can't be honest with me, if there's not a common, I mean, if we're not coming together on the common ground of what's true and what's not, if you're just gonna lie to my face, 
I'm not going to tell you what you want to know. In other words, next blank on your page, Jesus won't engage with truth manipulators. Jesus won't engage with truth manipulators. Now, of course, we know if you, all you got to do is read the passage, we know that Jesus continued to talk with them after this. It's not that he shut up, but here's what he did. He moved from having a dialogue to speaking in parables. And he started telling stories about them to them and everybody else around him, but he just, he only began to speak in parables. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Remember, the disciples came to him at one point. Why do you talk this way? Why do you say things like this? People don't always understand. Just be direct. Why, don't, why do you talk in parables? And what's Jesus' response? To harden their hearts. I wonder. When you look around the state of our nation, we say one nation under God. Our money says, in God we trust. But you look around at the state of our nation, and it does not appear to me that we trust God. It does not appear to me that we're under God's authority. It doesn't appear to me that we're chasing after his will, his plan at all. And, and not only that, but what I see is I see churches all around the country shriveling up. I see churches closing their doors all around the country today. And I see Christians begging, Christian pastors begging for there to be a movement of God that seems like it's never going to come. I wonder if we are in the state we're in today because we've just lied to God enough where he won't engage with us anymore. I wonder if he's just not taking a step back and now... He's allowing our hearts to be hardened. Is that harsh? Has Jesus stopped engaging with us? Now, I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think he said, I'm done with you. I, I don't think that's it. I believe there is hope for our nation. I believe there's hope for Christianity in America. I believe that, but I also sense kind of a, stepping back a little bit what do you think watch the news listen to the radio find a random Spotify playlist I tried that yesterday second song I had to cut it off just the filth just the filth in pop music today that your kids know all the words to they love it so much they dance to it our culture today is all about no objective truth. Our culture today is saying that truth is non-binary. It's truth fluid. So truth may be truth for you, but it's not truth for me. It may be true today, but not true tomorrow. We're all about relativistic thinking today. Can I get an amen on that? That's the entire philosophy of all media right now. That's the entire philosophy of our educational system right now. We're raising a generation without truth. 
Where there is no truth, there are no lies. If there is no truth, there's no right and no wrong. If there is no truth, there is no human dignity. It's only because of truth that we believe in the God-given dignity of the human individual. And if there's no truth, there's no common ground for any dialogue. If there's no truth, language loses its meaning, right? I mean, because if there's no truth, then all the terms that you use can change to fit your context, right? Are we seeing that today? Heck yes, we are all over the place. And language has become really dead to us. Terms, when they mean whatever you want them to mean, depending on whatever your context, um, language no longer expresses reality. Now language manipulates reality. And it's no longer used, language is no longer used to collaborate. It's used to control. And whoever's got the biggest microphone has the control. So I just want to be clear. The scripture is really, really foundationally clear that there is absolute truth, that there is absolute right and wrong. I'm just going to show you one little fragment of one little section of one little verse, okay? I'm just going to show you one thing right here in Romans. It says this. It says that you and I are to abhor what is evil and to hold fast what is good. I mean, I could show you a thousand verses, I feel like, but I just, I, this one just really struck me because it's telling us that you abhor what definitely exists and you hold fast to what definitely exists. It doesn't say that good is whatever you hold fast to. It says that you hold fast to what is objectively good. It doesn't say that you, um, you, know, you, you hate whatever you don't like or it doesn't say that whatever you hate is evil. It says that you hate what is objectively evil. Does this make sense? God doesn't change, we change, right? He is being very clear with us that good and evil exist outside of you. There is absolute good, there is absolute evil. Our hearts cling to things that we desire, Right, Our hearts cling to things that we want to have, that we think we deserve. Our hearts cling to things that may be pet sins, you know, that may be addictions. Our hearts cling to things that may not be good for us. And so what this is telling us here is there is absolute good, there is absolute evil, and what we are to do is to bring our minds, our emotions in line with the truth. That process is called sanctification, where he's saying there are boundaries and you and I are to bring our existence into line with reality. We don't define reality. We come in line with God's predetermined reality. Hello? In other words, what I'm trying to say really, the next blank on your page is that truth exists because God exists. Truth exists because God exists. So all religions, all of the world's religions, they try to, they claim to depict uh, whatever they say is, you know, their version of reality. 
You know, all religions have their own, but Christianity is really, really different and distinctive from all of them because for all the rest of the world's religions, you have a philosophy about reality. So you learn more and more truths about what the reality is. Christianity is not like this. Christianity is different because the Bible presents truth as a person, right? Christianity is different because it's not about memorizing, knowing, learning a progression or a chain of events. It's about knowing an individual, right? John 1, 14, the gospel writer says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes full of grace and truth, and Jesus himself in that same gospel says, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus makes a bold claim. He says, I am the truth. Know me and know truth. He is not just the giver of truth. He is the truth. Do you know him? Do you know him? Because all of us, listen to me, all of us want to build our houses on the shifting sands of what we think, what we perceive, what we prefer. All of us are built that way because all of us are broken by sin. And that leads to nothing but collapse. That's the shifting sand builder that Jesus talks about, the one who builds his house on the relative state of the moment and then the storm comes, the sand gets eroded out, and the house collapses. In other words, all of us, all of us are, are when we build our house on our perception of the truth, that's sin, and that leads to destruction. And he promised there's a day of destruction coming. You know, we don't talk about that day very often in church. I did a whole sermon uh, or two about it earlier this year, uh, but we don't talk about it. There is a day of destruction coming when God will wipe everything out once and for all. It's all gonna happen, and it's all gonna, you know, the old, the old school that, uh, preachers would say, it's all gonna burn, right? We don't talk like that in church too much anymore, but it is, and that's the truth. Lies do not stand eternally when God is the king of eternity. And so you build your house on lies, destruction. And that's coming for every sinner without the truth. But Jesus came full of grace and truth. And Jesus did this incredibly humble thing a week after that donkey ride, he goes to the cross and this king of kings, full of grace and truth, he took all of your sin and all of God's anger at your sin on himself and he paid the price for your lives. He paid the price for every heart you've broken, every disaster you've made, every mistake, every lie you've told, everything. 
Jesus took it all himself. He took the destruction of God in himself, dying in your place. And he went to the grave cold and dead. And he paid the price for your sin so well that three days later, all paid for, he rose again from the dead and he lives today. He is the truth and he wants to bring truth into your life. He wants to turn you from a person of relative truth, aka lies, into a person full of grace and truth like he is. He wants to make you new. That's why in Romans it says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put on truth. Wear it like it was a belt around you. Roman soldiers in the day, the first, the first of their armor that they would put on would be the belt. Did a little bit of research this week, not gonna go into all of it, but basically the belt, you know, I thought the belt just kind of held your sword. You know, you have your, you know, you put your sword in the thing on your belt. But it also, it turns out, it holds, the belt holds your breastplate in place. If you aren't wearing the belt, your breastplate is just gonna be flopping around while you're trying to do battle. It holds your, secures your breastplate to yourself. Not only that, but it also secured your pack that you carried. You would wedge it in inside your belt so that you've got a counter balance and you can carry a heavy load and do battle without a pack weighing you down and swinging you from one side to another. In other words, without the belt of truth, the whole rest of the armor isn't even possible. Put on truth. Know Jesus. Make sure you are in the truth, his truth. Because you cannot even fight this battle unless you are wearing that belt of truth all the way around you. Jesus says in Matthew 7, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house it will not collapse because it's built on bedrock this is who I want you to be I want you to be the person who is standing firm with that belt secured knowing who they are and what they're called to be fighting and winning Last blank on your page is this. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. Do I know him? I'd like to invite you to know him right now. Let's, let's all bow our heads. I'd like to lead everybody in a simple prayer, an introductory prayer to knowing Jesus. I, I know you hear me pray this prayer every Sunday. But you know, there's probably... Statistically, somebody in the room that you may have heard this prayer a hundred times, but you've never really prayed it and meant it. You've prayed it in a relative sense. You know, God, I give you my life. I surrender. I'm yours till I get home, till something else threatens my authority, till I feel like I'm not going to win and I need to do something about it. I'm yours but I know better than you. 
and you've lived your life with the name Christian, but you are not in the truth. So I'm gonna ask you to pray this prayer today. I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna invite you into a relationship with him. I'm gonna beg you to give your life to him so that your feet will be planted on that solid bedrock and you'll be wearing that belt of truth. It's a simple prayer that you can pray right where you sit. Pray it with me. It goes like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I realize I'm a sinner. I've broken your heart by breaking your law. And God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I don't want to live that way anymore. I'm tired of claiming truth, but living a lie. Please forgive me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. God, as best as I know how, I give up. I surrender. I just want to be yours. I know I need to change, but I can't. So I need you. Please come into my life. Change me. Make me new. Thank you, Lord. From this moment on, I belong to you. I want to live in truth. So I'm never going back. And I know I'll never be the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.